Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. It's Friday. It does seem a bit like that somehow teachers are trying to teach the government something today. Strikes still happening. Absolutely, because the government's doubled down on refusing to commit to accepting a pay review body proposal for teachers' pay. So the pain, frankly, continues uh, in schools. The Education Minister, Robert Halfen, talking about how it's impossible to say what decision would actually be taken. Uh, I think this is really devastating news. The unions talking about actually um, schools could face coordinated strike action come the autumn. Yeah, I know, which is the sort of exact sort of nightmare that parents don't want to be hearing about uh, as they're only starting the summer holidays now. The prospect that things will get uh, more disrupted towards the latter half of the year, certainly something that, that will cause concern for many, not going to help the government's popularity either. So just to remind you that where we are in that long-running dispute, so teachers rejecting the government's offer, which was a £1,000 one-off payment and then an average 4.5% rise mm. for staff next year. The thing is, though, it's not as if the Labour Party wants to commit on the actual yes. level of pay either. Keir Starmer was asked, pressed as he has been a number of times about whether he would support a 6.5% pay rise for teachers if this is recommended by the independent school teachers review body and again uh, he's said no. He spoke to LBC for example saying he supports the strike being resolved. And it's not just teachers on strike. No, the Tube also going to be on strike uh, for the RMT announcing a week of action on the London Underground from the 23rd to the 28th of July. That's another long-running dispute over jobs, cuts, and also things around pensions and working conditions as well. Some of this is to do with jobs that are being axed from stations, um, mm. but also you know the, the same sort of complaints that we've heard from the other rail unions as well, uh, some of which has been resolved, but there is also a looming ASLEP strike from the, the also due to happen uh, later uh, this this month as well. Yeah, so that's on strike action. Um, so that's something, a huge issue that the government has to resolve. The other one, though, is also kind of Labour related. So this is um, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak wanting to cut the ranks of Britons who are declared too sick to work. Uh, a reform to the system of fit notes that are issued by doctors, of course, if you're unwell. It could be something that comes up in the autumn statement. We know that sickness is costing billions of pounds in terms of lost output. Also, just kind of from the people side of this, uh, we know that many tens of thousands of people are missing from the workforce since the pandemic. But I do wonder whether this is the right way for the government to solve it. It's actually about the, um, the issue of the sick note and how it's issued. 
Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a very controversial issue to tackle. There's a lot of political sensitivity about this as well, because, again, everything that we hear in terms of policy announcements, we have to frame in the context of us being that closer to a general election. And trying to force sick people to work is not a good look for well, any party, if, if that's how people end up framing the issue. And you can be sure that's what the Labour Party will be looking at this and trying to brand this as. Sure, but from the economic perspective, there are 2.6 million people who are long-term sick. That is a massive problem. Mel Stride, for example, minister saying that, you know, if you could get 650,000 people back in the workforce, you could slash 2p off tax rates. And um, in and of itself, the government are worried that there isn't enough um, help for people to get back into work if they have gone through a period of sickness, that the whole system is too binary. You know, yeah. you're, you're, you're either so fit or you're yeah. unfit for work and the fact that there's kind of nowhere in between as well. And and the issues, I suppose, because these the numbers of people who are being deemed unfit for work have mm. grown so much yes. since the pandemic as well. And that's sort of another piece of this puzzle when we're looking at the tightness in the labour market, which is part of, you know, another driving factor that's contributing uh, and to... And NHS wait lists, you know, the whole picture. Unfortunately, everything hangs together, doesn't it, as, as one. Um so those are a few of the political issues uh, that are top of mind today. But then, of course, Monday, you've got the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, who's going to lay out government intervention to increase the amount that UK pension schemes invest in UK companies. What's all of this for? Again, to drive living standards, to, to boost the economy in the UK. Also, uh, to free up financial companies to do more research into UK companies, basically to pull away some of the barriers in the way of economic growth in Britain. Yeah, this is something that we'll be listening out for uh, on the at the annual Mansion House policy speech on Monday. A must listen for the financial industry. And um, this year, we're expecting though the Chancellor to put forward a key proposal, which is rolling back part of the EU financial rules known as MIFID two. To explain, we've got our city editor Catherine Griffiths. Catherine Griffiths with us. Catherine, great to have you. Can you just give us a bit of background to this? What is this part of the rule that we think the Chancellor is going to be announcing changes to? Ah, uh, yes. So we think that the Chancellor will say that the rule that we currently have, which is a European Union rule, which means that um, banks that provide analyst research are not allowed to bundle the cost of that research into other fees. So, you know, the fees for buying and selling shares and other things. So the European Union in 2018 said those fees could not be bundled anymore. Um, and actually, ironically, going back in time, the UK was very much in favour of that reform. And the whole reason for it was to bring transparency and clarity into the market. It came after the dot-com boom when the view was taken that quite a lot of fairly bad, dodgy research was put out by banks that on the one hand were pumping the shares, on the other hand, they privately were selling them. So a view was taken to stop that, and these MIFID changes were seen as really important. And there are plenty of people who do think it's really good not to have those fees bundled. But the trouble is, we've seen in the UK and other countries have seen too, that a consequence has been a dying off of research, particularly into smaller companies, because it's been hard to make those those analyst research notes work economically. The fact of the matter is that investors, asset managers just haven't been that key to pay those extra fees. So mm. we've seen that research dying off and the hope is to try and reverse that and get more research done, particularly into the smaller companies, which might in turn boost investment in them. 
Yeah, absolutely. Boosts investment and investment returns, therefore, for people who are you know, putting a bit of money away for their pension. Do you think it's really going to be able to move the needle, though, for investment in the UK? Does it mean that we could see more research into UK companies? Basically, do you think it might work? I think, I think it could be. I think it's one of several things that together might make a difference. I think it definitely we can definitely see that there is there's been a real drying up of research again into those particularly into those sort of mid cap companies. And if we can get it's logical, I think that if there is some crucially good quality research done again into them, then yes, investors, pension funds and others might think, yeah, okay, we have the confidence, we feel we have the knowledge to pick which mid caps we might like to put in our portfolio. Let's go for it. And I suppose the thing to bear in mind is that this likely change will come with other changes. We talked a lot about the fact that there's going to be pension reform. So other ways in which kind of pension money in particularly can get freed up to be invested in more growth assets, particularly UK growth assets, of course, is the hope of the government. So the hope is these things will kind of come together mm. and form a new basis to kind of re-infuse re, re, uh, in, investors here in the UK about investing in UK stocks and UK companies. Catherine, you speak to people in the city all the time. I wonder how much optimism is there that these sorts of changes would have a material difference and would boost this all-important industry in the UK? I think people are quite behind these changes. There's been lots and lots of work done by sort of senior city folk and and others into these potential reforms. Quite often the city likes to sit on the sidelines of anything that's too political. They found Brexit, as we know, an absolute hot potato, for example. And I think they've tried to learn the lessons of that a bit and come forward with ideas and put their heads above the parapet a bit. So we've seen people like Julia Hoggett at the London Stock Exchange and others really sort of give investing a lot of their own, you know, political capital into some reforms. And I think as a consequence, they do think some of these changes will mm. make a difference. But, you know, probably nothing in isolation. And then yeah. you have to bear in mind slightly the sort of the scepticism. So, you know, these re- these research changes might be good, but the reality is some people think, you know, the government's just not being remotely ambitious enough in its sort of post-Brexit reforms and, you know, arguably could be doing an awful lot more to deliver what it claimed it could deliver, which was really quite radical changes to EU rules to sort of really give the UK this, you know, supposed Brexit dividend. Yeah, absolutely. What about the other big announcement, though, which, again, we've reported on a lot around this idea of whether a 5% of UK pension fund money will go into uh, UK growth companies. Um, it's something that the Lord Mayor of London has talked a lot um, about and, and to us and that we've been covering. And that may be one of the other big changes that Hunt announced on mon- announces on Monday. And I know you're going to be at the Mansion House event, you know, watching everybody cram in. Yes. to the yes. huge and beautiful hall. So do, do you think that is going to be part of it? Yeah, I think it's very much going to be part of it. I think the idea is to get um, pension funds, insurers in many cases that, mention, that manage those pension funds to sign up to 5% of defined contribution pension money, the money that depends on investment outcomes as opposed to defined benefit money, which of course 
is based on fixed payouts. And I think that we'll see, as you say, 5%. Um, there may be a number attached to it. So depending on how many um, pension funds insurers they can get to sign up to this pledge, you know, we're obviously getting close to the Mansion House speak speech now uh, i think it could be in the in the 20 or 30 billion pound range um, mm. of commitments to to back these growth businesses Catherine, what's the perception of this government in the financial industry in london now and are a lot of you know actors in the industry looking at the labor party and being very carefully examining their approach uh, towards finance to try and guess where where financial policy might go after the next election Yes, they're, they're spending a massive amount of time looking at what Labour may or may not do. And Labour has been very keen to engage. You hear constantly of Rachel Reeves and some of the other members of the top team going for meetings with city people. Um, Labour is very keen on this pension stuff, for example. Um, it's actually going to be quite interesting because on the one hand, it does seem like Jeremy Hunt and his team at the Treasury are going to go for something fairly significant on the pension reform front. So what does Labour do? Um, On the one hand, it's probably quite sympathetic with a lot of the changes, but does it try to sort of position itself as saying, well, yep, these things are in the national interest, so we back them. It's going to take several parliaments probably to implement them fully. So, you know, we hope Labour, Labour hopes that it will be those people to do the full implementation, or do they try and pick some holes? Do they try and pick some fights? It's going to be interesting to see what they do tactically. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating moment. Catherine, just lastly, a flavour of the event itself. I mean, know that it's something that people in the City of London really pay attention to, um, but outside of the city, sometimes not so much. You must have been to loads of them. Yeah, um, I have. And, you know, it's hot and stuffy and um, packed in. Um, I mean, this one really has got a massive amount of interest. It's almost kind of levels of interest of a, of a budget and and you know mm. one of the more interesting budgets it's you know the mansion house speech is not always particularly exciting sometimes you get the feeling they're you know casting around to, for something to say but i suppose because we're at this moment where people feel these you know big reforms are needed it's it's come together with this event in front of this audience which are will be on the front line of implementing them so it's gathered this massive amount of interest but as you say across the country will people be you know refreshing their news websites to try and work out exactly what's said in the speech I mean I think probably not Okay well we will of course bring you the details of the announcements from that speech and explain what the impact will be uh, from those policies Catherine Griffiths for now thank you so much our city editor Catherine Griffiths there It's Friday, so we wanted to take a step back, though, from the day-to-day politics and spend a moment thinking about politics writ large, and in particular, conservatism, the doctrine shaped by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, but it is in crisis. This, according to our Bloomberg opinion columnist, Adrian Waldrich, who's been writing about it, and he joins us now in the studio. Very good morning. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. What has gone wrong with this what has been an amazingly successful branch of political thinking. Well, it's extraordinary. If you look back in the 1980s, conservatism was really the dominant intellectual trend. It was driving everything before it. And you had Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, who were the sort of the icons of this movement. And they really set the tone for politics. So Blair, um, George W, George H. W. Bush, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton all really took their cues, uh, whether they're left wing or right wing, they took their cues from from Reagan and Thatcher. Now, look at it. You have 
Donald Trump, um, who's going through a very painful legal process at the moment in uh, the United States. You have um, Boris Johnson, who has not only been expelled from, you know, has not only quit Parliament after a very, very um, damning judgment by the standards of our uh, committee, he's, he's even lost his parliamentary pass. So this sort of great movement is in, is in terrible crisis. Is it, how can we draw parallels between the UK and the US on this? Or what are the good parallels to draw? Because, I mean, there's obviously huge divergence as well in how the two political spheres operate. Well, the most obvious parallels are that they're both descendants of Thatcher and Reagan, who work together very, very closely. Um, and they both produce this strange populist conservative amalgam in the form of Donald Trump and um, Boris Johnson, who are similar even to the point of having very eccentric very eccentric hair. And they do see each other as brother and sister parties. There's a lot of interaction between the two. But as you say, there are there are big tensions. There isn't the same sort of um, libertarianism in Britain, uh, certainly as regards, um, you know, weaponry, <laughs> um, as, as, as there is in the United States. Um, and Britain now, I think, is moving into a sort of post-populist era. We're getting rid of the sort of really hard populism that um, you, you saw um, with Boris Johnson. And that's not the case in the United States. I mean, Donald Trump is still easily the favourite to be the uh, Republican nominee. So what's gone wrong with this ideology? Is it generational? Is it what, Why is it in such disarray? Well, there are two ideas at the heart of Reaganism and Thatcherism. One was that you let the market free. And the second is that you assert the power of the nation state. Uh, and both of those have come into a sort of crisis. One is that the free market has damaged many of the people who are in favour of it. You've got big global businesses crushing local businesses. You've got big global businesses embracing sort of cultural liberalism, wokeism, which conservatives don't like. So that is breaking up some of the uh, basis of the uh, conservative coalition. You've also got um, nationalism clashing with globalism, with globalisation, most obviously in the form of Brexit, where you had a revolt of um, the nation state against the EU and, in a bigger sense, against many of the features of, 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 of global capitalism. You know, this notion of let's take back control. We wanted control locally and nationally rather than in the hands of big um, abstract uh, European bodies or global bodies. And in the United States also, this upsurge in nationalism is to mm. a significant extent a protest against free movement of capital, free movement of people, free movement of goods. And, you know, Trump, Trump was, you know, n not a free marketeer. He was very much the opposite of a free marketeer. So these, these big forces unleashed by the Reagan Thatcher consensus have damaged a lot of uh, a lot of conservatives. Has Brexit changed conservatism in Britain irreparably? Is it has it been good or bad for it? <laughs> well, I think Brexit has been very bad for Britain and therefore is bad for any party that operates within the context of Britain. But I think it's done it's it's had a very mixed impact. I think economically it's most definitely not delivered the benefits that the Conservatives claimed that it would uh, deliver, and they will pay for that uh, at the election. We were told all sorts of things, a better funded NHS, uh, uh, access to global markets, um, easy access indeed to European markets, all of which have not turned out to be true. But I think one thing has happened sort of positively uh, from Brexit, and that is that the people who are being left behind, um, who are being ignored 
by British politics, i.e. they're just about managing the working classes, you know, the provincial people outside London, have become much more central to, to British politics. A lot of British politics for a long time, up to 2016, was, was a fight for the middle classes, for aspirational people. Now, I think, you know, the, the northern working class will be much closer to the centre of the stage. So in that sense, it's been a good thing politically, both for the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. They're now dealing with a group of people who who, who, who were ignored previously. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, we also, though, as, as you rightly point out, we're at a kind of pivotal moment in terms of political thinking in the UK. Do you think that conservatism can be saved? I and mean, probably not for the next general election, surely. But it does feel like a moment of big ideas, doesn't it? And And in conservative circles, it seems to be this idea that maybe there is time before the next general election to turn things around if we come up with new, well, fresh ideas. I think there was time uh, when re, uh, when Boris Johnson fell for the Conservatives to turn themselves around. Had they not gone through the extraordinary um, mistake of having Liz Truss and the economic damage that that did, and also had they not... Um, been addicted to rebellion. But there's been, um, I think you're allowed one mess up, Brexit, but two mess ups with the Liz Truss fiasco is quite a lot for people to bear. And secondly, this habit of rebellion does create a lot of uh, a lot of distrust in the population. So I think Rishi has probably lost his, his one chance of turning things around. So I would suspect um, a Labour Party victory. Uh, there is a peculiar thing going on here, though. I think there's an enormous amount of interesting debate on the right about the future of conservatism. There's a real clash between the globalists and the nationalists, a clash between the people who want a more free market approach, classic Thatcherism, and people who want more state intervention. Um, and that's not what you really expect from a dying party, an interesting debate. And, I, you know, when... When um, Tony Blair was preparing for power, there was a sense that the consensus was shifting to the left and they created a lot of intellectual um, headwinds. Mm. I don't think uh, Starmer is doing that, maybe because of his personal caution. You don't get a sense that there's a fantastic debate going on in the left and there are new things going on. And when they do embrace new ideas, Bidenomics and the rest of it, they suddenly retreat away from them. Yeah, I, I think that was the point that I wanted to come on to, that it's so interesting, of course, that Clinton... And and Tony Blair included in this idea of conservatism that they moved their left-wing party sort of centre yeah. ground, uh, and that sort of just um, taken as 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 red, I suppose, as it were these days, which I think is is sort of interesting in and of itself. That that my question, I suppose, around Keir Starmer is, you know, what is the offer from the Labour Party in order to sort of you know, to, to repeat the success of Tony Blair and to capture again the next general election, what would that have to be? I mean, uh, Tony Blair was very interesting because he basically said we'll have um, liberal economic policies plus <laughs> liberal social policies. And that made a very coherent doctrine and it fitted in with the interests uh, uh, and values of a lot of people in the country. If you look at Starmer, it's not very clear what he wants to do. He's a sort of tactical person. He sort of says, well, we need to get the white working class in the north on board. So he does various things that sort of appearing with a with the union jack and things like that uh, then he says oh well there's a there's there's some interesting stuff going on in the united states about bidenomics about a more active role of the state about state energy companies and things like that so we need a bit of that then the next day almost he walks back from that because he realizes that you know spending 30 billion a year or whatever his figure was is impossible in a high uh, high interest rate high debt environment so you're getting uh, a confused very very tentative message and as 
say, I think that's partly to do with Starmer's personality, but it's also partly to do with the very, very hostile uh, environment. We have a hostile environment demographically, and we have a hostile environment economically, uh, because um, money is no longer free, as it was. Uh, interest uh, rates are going up. Inflation is a big problem. So any government faces big constraints on uh, on a positive vision. So I, I suspect that we'll have a lot of vague talk about community, but not very much real sort of political nitty-gritty action. Adrian Aldridge, Bloomberg Opinion Economist. Fascinating conversation. And it is a great read, by the way, if you can check out Adrian's piece on conservatism, uh, which you'll find on the Bloomberg website. Um, it's, it's, uh, we don't have much time to delve into political theory on this programme, but I think we're going to have to do it more often. No, absolutely. Conter- conservatism in crisis, but it can be rescued. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on Bloomberg Radio. Well, looking ahead to some of the events that we will be watching out for politically over the weekend and into next week, we've talked already about the Mansion House speech that's happening on Monday evening. Of course, that's very important for the financial sector. But Joe Biden is also arriving to the UK on Sunday as well. He's going to be uh, having meetings, of course, with the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, but with King Charles as well. Rishi Sunak next week will be heading to that meeting of NATO leaders in Lithuania as well. Plenty to discuss there, not only around Sweden's accession to the Defence Alliance, which we've Mm. been uh, hearing from the last minute flurry of meetings around trying to get Turkey on board with that accession as well uh, but also uh, perhaps laying out a path towards Ukraine joining the Defence Alliance too further down the line so that's something to watch out for. Um, We have a couple of other issues that are going to be dominating the political conversation anyway certainly here uh, in the UK. The five day strike by junior doctors begins on Thursday next week and also keep a watch out for developments on Thames Water. They're going to publish financial results on Monday. Executives from that water company due to speak to MPs on Wednesday of next week as well. I feel like we don't have another quiet week ahead of us, Caroline. We absolutely do not. So you have to keep that end of term feeling at bay and uh, keep up, of course, with the political news. That is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Our audio engineer today was Marufa Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more UK politics on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.